I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. Okay, this is quite a podcast episode. So we have got Beth Mayer, who is going to be talking to us from two different perspectives, which is why I think this podcast is really exciting. Beth and I talk about the logistical part of getting treatment, insurance, access to care, things like that. Things that are really, really important because it can be a daunting process. Also talking about relapse in recovery and how anyone, even though it's difficult, can turn it around. I really, really hope you all get a lot of information. It is difficult to navigate through the healthcare system, especially when you are already at a place feeling depleted. We're here to talk about insurance, how to talk to admissions departments to get certain things for you, all the kernels that often are not talked about, but again, really important. So I'm really excited, everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am really, really honored to have this week's guest, Beth Mayer. Beth is a licensed clinical social worker and has been doing this for over 35 years. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. Great. So, Beth, what I would love to do is start with, so for people who don't know you, if you could just give a a little bit of a background of You've done so much in the field. And the reason why I think it's important for people to know is because I want to talk about access to treatment. And you are kind of my guru for that. So can you just start with that? Can you let the listeners know a little bit about yourself? So um, I graduated from graduate school in 1983. And I just I have a bit of a funny story because in those years, people actually didn't know about eating disorders. And I had just taken a group therapy class in my graduate school. And I saw a tiny little advertisement in the local paper about an eating disorder group that was starting and they were looking for co-leaders. And back then, the name of the organization was Anorexia Bulimia Care. Nobody would an organization like that now, but. Um, And so I responded to the ad and um, that's when my career pretty much started in the eating disorder field. And I had a lovely group of clinicians I worked with that uh, ran groups 
And then I continued at ABC, became a group supervisor. Um, and slowly as ABC kind of took a turn and decided to close, uh, META, the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association opened and I began kind of consulting, volunteering there. I was on the board of directors. And then my stint was about a 17 year run at the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association where I was the executive director. Along the way, I always had full-time jobs in another field. Beth, I didn't even know that. Keep like I listeners can't see this, but I've known you for years and my eyes just opened wide. Okay, keep going. So when I first started, and the thing that I think is so uh, exciting and lovely about my experience is I started in 83 and I worked for about 12 years in the homeless field. And I did that full time along with my eating disorder experience. And so I really was so blessed to have a very eclectic clinical experience. Um, I worked with runaways and um, people from all over the world and homeless families and individuals. And in about 1987, I started my private practice, which again, I always did part-time. And then after about 12 years in the homeless field, I went to a place called Riverside Community Care. And again, full-time jobs. And I ran a shelter for adolescents. And then I moved on and ran their um, adolescent programs. I ran some home-based programs and a day treatment program. And as I was transitioning from there from after, I think it was about seven or eight years, I ended up getting the full-time job at Meta. Unbelievable. Again, I am amazed. I, I, I feel almost like shame on me. I've known you for this long and I've, I've never known this part. And this is so, Beth, that's so powerful and beautiful and dedicated just to the work of mental health in all different populations, right? Can you speak a little bit because when you did work for Meta, and this is not about any particular organization, but you did help people find access to treatment or what would be the best fit for them. What are your thoughts about accessibility to treatment right now? Well, treatment is hard to come by. And I think that as a clinician or as a parent or somebody suffering from an eating disorder, you have to be an amazing advocate. And so I learned that early on in my career because I was working with homeless people. And when I get a homeless family in my office, I was like, there has to be a resource for you. Like we're not, we're not ending this day until we find you a place to sleep, right? And so that followed and carried me into my work as a clinician in the eating disorder field. So I feel like it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think that you can really, really fight for the rights of our patients and advocate for them to get them the treatment they need. It is not always effective, but I think that I, I, I'm amazed at how many families uh, get sit what we call single case agreements where they can go to a place that they deserve. Um, and I think that it's, it's not, again, our whole mental health system is broken, but I, I say to people, call your legislator, call, you know, call the globe, whatever you need to do to get services, let's do it. 
Yeah, that is so important what you talked about with the single case agreement. And so I'm going to just expand a little bit on that because I don't think everybody is knows what a single case agreement is. So, but even with that, you have to have particular benefits. So there's so much complication that gets involved when you're going through your insurance policy. Do you have out-of-network benefits? If so, is it only in certain states? But a single case agreement is wonderful because if a client wants to go to a particular treatment center and that treatment center doesn't take their insurance, the treatment center can typically advocate for that client call their insurance company and say, this is why we feel the client should come to our facility. That's a single case agreement. So the insurance company that does not traditionally cover that treatment center will do it for that. And by the way, as a clinical director, I got a lot of single case agreements for clients. And I think that people, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I can't believe we haven't even talked about this before on a podcast because people feel overwhelmed with the process, right? So go ahead. One of the things I think it's really important, the minute you get on the phone with somebody that is looking for services is ask them to keep a notebook of everyone they talk to and everyone they're they're in touch with. And so they can go back and said, but I tried this and I tried that and that wasn't effective. Or this person said I wasn't eligible. The joke I used to, when I was um, at Meta, I used to say, you know, call the insurance company five times and see what kind of response you get and document it because you might get five different responses. And, you know, people make mistakes and so, I think that, again, you really want to support people and empower them to know that they can fight for their rights. And I also want to say, I know my experience, both working at Montanito in the past and knowing all the other facilities in the country, the admissions department at any facility is willing to do it. So they're very well versed. No matter what program you're looking at, you don't have to do it totally by yourself. You have to just make sure you get in touch with the right people in an admissions department. And I've never worked with a program that hadn't tried. Doesn't mean they always get it. So I wanna be very clear about that. But they try and they try really, really hard. What about you? Were there obstacles for you getting treatment when you were going through your eating disorder? Uh, No, because I didn't get any treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I had my eating disorder in the 70s and, you know, and um, there, there were, there, I did get a tiny bit of treatment and it was so bad (laughs) that, um, you know, people didn't know about it. When I when I was in my struggles with my eating disorders during high school and college, nobody in, even my, in, my, in my life knew about my eating disorder. And when I finally decided to kind of go and see a doctor, that doctor was so incompetent, um, th- you know, and the hospitals weren't really in existence. And so I kind of... T- one of the, I, I wish, I really truly wish that I had gotten treatment because 
hopefully I would not have been as ill, but I, um, it did not, it really did not exist very much in the seventies. So right now, I can imagine about 50% of my clients that I'm saying, I think you may need a higher level of care. They're saying, but Beth didn't go to a higher level of care. Because I have so many clients who have said, no, 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 I don't need to. I, I also, so I had my eating disorder 30 years ago in the 80s and late 80s. And same thing, was not accessible. Treatment was not accessible. Um, and I say to clients now, I would never want someone to do it the way I did it. It was not easy on me, on my family system, on my on my recovery process. So, I, and again, and there's a few clients in particular that I'm listening to right now in my head saying, well, see, she didn't do it. You didn't do it. No, it is so it is so phenomenal that there's so much treatment accessible right now, even if it's hard to get due to insurances different kinds of programs to meet each individual need. There's equine therapy, there's there's trauma programs, there's DBT programs. So I just, I wanted to make sure that like I said, at least from my own experience, God, I wish there was treatment when I had my eating disorder. I went to a therapist that did not specialize in eating disorders and it was so hard, so hard. I agree, uh, Karen. I would never have wished my recovery on anybody. <laughs> I just, it was, it was so hard and so physically and emotionally painful. Um, and luckily, I had a family system. When I finally did disclose to people that I was suffering, um, people were there to support me. But I would never have wished that on anybody. And I am so grateful that there are resources now. Um, to support people. It was a horrible time. And, you know, people just had not a clue. And I, you know, I always feel very lucky to be alive. I mean, I, I, I every day I think is a blessing. Can I say that I, um, for those of you who have been following the podcast series sequentially, I interviewed Tom and Doris Smeltzer, who wrote Andrea's voice. Uh, silenced from bulimia. And Tom and Doris lost their daughter 20 years ago to bulimia nervosa when, when Andrea was 19 years old. I, like you, still cannot, sometimes cannot believe that I am here today, alive, to speak about to have this podcast, to have these relationships like I have with you, to have clients. It is People, I just don't think people get it. I, what I really don't think, and I, and I mean no disrespect, I don't think parents get how severe the the lethality is. That the right word, lethality? That that I, because I don't know if they want to know that because that's so painful. One of the things that I realized in my recovery, and I and I and I get when I'm working with my clients is that. I think most people can't tolerate knowing how ill they are or don't get it. So they can see their best friend who might be struggling with an eating disorder and say, oh my God, they're in terrible shape. Oh, I hope they can recover. But in my life with an eating disorder, I don't think I really understood how sick I was until I came through it. So I kind of get that way of thinking that um, why people 
can't almost tolerate knowing how severe the illness is. Uh, and, and I think it makes us feel a little crazy. If, and so I, I get that kind of sense of denial. Yes. And it's like I have on my website when I said I was never afraid of dying from an eating disorder. I was afraid to live in the world without it. Physical death was not even a fear of mine. My parents got it. My parents were petrified and I thought they were being dramatic. I was like, oh God, you know, I'm taken out of college, whatever. By the way, I also want to say, because sometimes clients think, well, I'm not that sick. I'm, I'm not so sick that I'm taken out of college. I'm not so sick that I can't get married or raise a family. Doesn't matter. Your body is sacred. And unfortunately, your body can also stop working from one bad binge purge episode. Restricting food, binging on food, your every, every body is different, which is also why Andrea's story is so powerful. She struggled for 13 months and died from bulimia. So I think, again, people just, I, I often hear clients say, I'm not sick enough. I don't deserve treatment. I say, anybody who's suffering, you absolutely deserve whatever it is that you need. What do you think was the most difficult part of your recovery process? Uh, that's an interesting question. My, um, my, the most difficult or scariest part was when I uh, graduated college and I uh, actually what, what started my recovery was my sister and I were planning on going to Europe after we ended up graduating the same year. And I had been symptomatic probably for about eight years. And I decided that I would stop my symptoms because I couldn't, I couldn't disclose to anybody that I had had my eating disorder. And I had a really horrible physical response. Um, again, should, ha should have been hospitalized. And it, it was really physically and emotionally painful. But that was what started um, my recovery and started giving me a little hope that I could live in a world without symptoms. Uh, and then it was rocky from there. But I think that initial leap into recovery, which I should, again, should have done in a treatment program, was the hardest and the scariest. And the next scariest thing for me was when I decided uh, to disclose to some people I loved that about my eating disorder. And, you know, I called one of my family members and said, I have something horrible to tell you. And, and you know, it's, they, they were sure that I was dying, <laughs> which I was, but I was, I had already started trying to recover. And, you know, and I slowly started telling my loved ones and, and then trying to get the level of support that I needed. How did you do that, Beth? Like right now, I can also imagine listeners who have not disclosed this to their family members or friends or partners. How did you start disclosing? Can you also talk about what it was like if you got negative responses because I, the point of this podcast is not to paint a rosy picture of the recovery process. It's to paint a realistic picture. So 
Can you share a little bit about that process? The, the first thing I did was I joined a group, which at that point they did have a group. And we began in the group. There were three other women and a group leader who had recovered. Not sure she was really recovered, but in those days, that was fine. It was okay. And we began talking about our eating disorders. And we all began talking because we none of us had disclosed to anybody. Uh, and we began talking about telling people. And so I made a clear plan of who I would tell first, the safest person, and see what their reaction was. I got a good response. I did not get a good response from everyone in, in my family system, uh, but I had enough people that I could pick and choose who to reach out and get support for. So I continued that group and then um, began therapy, again, not with somebody that was good with eating disorders because there wasn't really anybody. Uh, and then it was, again, an up and down process until I felt like I went to graduate school, um, still had a few relapses. I mean, it was rocky. Yes. Can, can you say a little bit more? Do you mind sharing a little more about how rocky it was? And No, not at all. It yeah, it was really hard. And I think the one thing I've learned, and, and I really do tell um, all of my clients, I truly believe this, is that what I had to do was learn how to be gentle with any of my relapses. One of my best friends, um, who I had disclosed, who's still my best friend today, um, said to me, so Beth, what if you're symptomatic four times a year? Can you live with that? And I was like, oh, oh my God, rather than being symptomatic all the time, yeah, that would be tolerable. And, and that was a really pivotal time in my recovery because I started really trying to be gentle with myself when I did you know, have symptoms and not beat myself up as much. And, and one of the things I just wanna say that, that really was probably the first 10 to 15 years of my recovery, I would always say to myself, I never know if I, if I could become symptomatic. I, I hoped I wouldn't, but if something horrible happened, if you know, my whole family, you know, some terrible tragedy happened, would I turn to my symptoms? I haven't, and I, I've had a lot of stuff happen in my life that have been tragedies, but I was, I always was a little bit on the alert for many, many years in my recovery, which I think was a good thing. Yes, yes. And I think this is why people don't understand that it takes so long to recover from an eating disorder. And I also think people get very discouraged. We often say it can take seven to 10 years to recover. And people are like, oh, hell no. I, it's, that's too long. The reality is you're not always at one place in the eating disorder for seven to 10 years. Like I always say to clients, it doesn't go eating disorder, 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 recovery. It goes in all different directions, eating disorder, eating disorder, step up in recovery, stay there, a little bit of a relapse sometimes, go forward with the eat, like it goes in cycles. And 
so people don't. And what I also say is your life isn't on hold for seven to 10 years. That's also part of the recovery process. As I let go some of my eating disorder behaviors and thoughts, I allowed a little more life to come in that filled that hole. And then I let go a few more thoughts and behaviors, and I allowed some relationships to come in to fill that hole. So it is a process that is not just, it's, it's not one or the other. It's just, it's a process, right? And one of the reasons, the other reason why it takes so long is the eating disorder. We're not just working on the behaviors. I know for me, I didn't start, by the way, mine was a diet. I went on a diet when I was 19 years old. That's where it started. But the thoughts had been building since I was a child of insecurities, low self-esteem, anxiety, intimacy fears, you know, maturity fears. So it takes a while to work through all of those. It doesn't happen overnight. I want to go back though, if it's okay. We were talking about how this is potentially a deadly disorder. Um, and one of the things that that Doris had said in her in her podcast is she wished someone had told her that. Nobody ever told her that this could kill her daughter. What is it like for you working with a population that we we both work in a population that has a high mortality rate? It is it it is concerning. What is it like for you? It's hard. Uh, I find it challenging, but I also um, hold tremendous hope for my patients. And I think that that is uh, one of the things I will say that I kind of have interviewed most of the patients, clients, whatever you call them, that have recovered. And I've asked them, what helped you the most in your recovery? And most of them will say that somebody else was holding hope for me when I could not do it anymore. And I always say that, you know, because I'm recovered and I also feel like I've grown into being a pretty strong human being, which I was not, you know, during my eating disorder days or even in my younger years, I am very physically and emotionally strong. I was not. And I can hold you up until you are ready to hold the hope that full recovery can happen. Um, I have seen miracles, absolute miracles. Another thing that I do, which has been unbelievably satisfying for me, is I consult to a number of the state hospitals. Um, one of the blessings of having such a diversified experience as a clinician is that I've dealt with people with major mental health. So, um, I consulted to three, I, I'm actually currently consulting to a state hospital where they have people who are struggling with eating disorders and they are not very trained in how to manage it. And so these are people that have been in treatment, every treatment program in the country, you know, and have ended up in the state system. And I have seen a lot of people leave the state hospital system and move through their recovery. Not everybody fully recovers, but they get to a place where one of the clients I work with who was in the state hospital system for years is currently in a relationship. Um, 
she has a life, she is um, stable medically, you know, there are so much that can happen. And I think it's, if you ever have a, a team that does not believe that it is feasible for you to recover, then you should not be with that team. I agree. I also want to say though, and this might be a bit controversial on the opposite side, I also think a team has to say, listen, we're here, we're not going anywhere. And if you're not ready to do this right now, that's okay. But I'm here for you when you are. I have also seen clients that Sometimes, and I know this is not an appropriate clinical thing to say in the world, but I'm working harder than they are. I want the recovery for them more than they do. I've said to parents, there are times when you have to say, okay, you can be in your eating disorder, but you can't live in the house. I'm not paying for college. I'm not even paying for treatment. If you want it, it's all there for you. And by the way, that's a really hard thing to do as a clinician and an incredibly hard thing to do as a parent. I, I agree. I think this is one of the most controversial areas in the clinical field at this point, because as you know, having run a treatment center, we never know when that residential program or whatever will click and help somebody uh, move into their recovery. But what I say, and I'm very clear about, is I am not at this point. There are some people who are doing it. I do not do palliative care. I am not going to sit by and watch you die. So I push. I sometimes second people. I get either get them in the hospital or tell their parents to. I also will say, you know, there have been two times in my career that I have advised parents not to take their child home. Yes. Oh, and it's so hard, right, Beth? But, and I apologize for interrupting, but you know what's more hard is for them to bury their child. And so that's why, that's, that's why sometimes we have to make these statements. Go ahead. I interrupted. I apologize. No, that's fine. And both times the people ended up going into treatment within three days. So I, again, I've been doing this for 37 years now, and I've only had two experiences where people really didn't refuse treatment and then ended up somewhere else, and, but they ended up going. So I really try to help families know that um, setting what I call loving limits is critical, but I also understand how frightening it can be. Um, to feel like your child could die from this or your loved one. I also say to a client, let's really talk this out. So what you're saying is, is you're actually willing to be homeless in order to keep your eating disorder. What are we missing? What am I not asking you? What am I not getting that you take the risk to be homeless and lose college tuition in order to keep this eating disorder. Because by the way, Beth, I think everything that we do has clinical relevance. If you like, like that in and of itself, I think is a huge question. Wow. I'll honor it. If that's what you want, 
is to keep your eating disorder and live on the streets, but we have to really figure out why the eating disorder is that entrenched in you, right? Absolutely, absolutely. What, well, I also think that that you and I, and 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 I don't, I, I think most people, a lot of people belong to, um, peer supervision groups. Um, I, I know you do a peer supervision group. I had done a, a peer supervision group for strictly with eating disorders for many years, which I needed. Now I do another peer supervision group. It is so important because by the way, we also need to get different perspectives. Sometimes we get too entrenched with our clients, right? And I need someone else to say, but wait a minute, have you thought about going in that direction? And I think, oh, how has peer supervision helped you? Because you've been with the same group for a long time. It's very sacred. I love my peer supervision group. I am, I am a supervisor and I am a big believer in supervision. I still get my own supervision. I supervise probably about 10 people in the field. And I also... Um, have this supervision group that I've had for 20, 25 years. Uh, it is important. Um, they call me out on my stuff. They know me well enough. Uh, I think it's very important to have a supervisor or to be a supervisor where you're not just being supportive, that you can really challenge people because I think we all need to be challenged. And I think it's critical. And another thing I do is I go to different specialists. Um, so if I have somebody with a trauma history, I want to get a consultation from somebody who is the best person in trauma in the country or an OCD specialist. So I tend to go to different people for different cases. I also have honestly, which I found really wonderful, I brought some of my patients to somebody with me and done a consult while I observe. So it's really, you can be very creative. I think that it's so important to our clients that they know that we're getting support and that we are managing our own affect issues around their level of distress so that we can be strong and hold ourselves in a very good position. Um, they need to know that I'm stronger than their eating disorders. Yes, yes. And I often say, it's okay, I can hold it. Don't worry about it. Give it to me. If you want, leave it in the office until you come back next week. I'd actually like you to. I'll hold your eating disorder because we are really strong. And I say this in every podcast, so forgive me listeners for constantly repeating myself. You do not have to be a recovered clinician to be an amazing eating disorder therapist, but there is something about working with a recovered clinician. I think that maybe that's why we have a little bit of that extra, like, it's okay, I can hold it. That's just been my experience. What are your thoughts? I have some, you know, I've done some um, trainings on self-disclosure and a couple of things that I think that the field doesn't really get yet I know that a lot of people are concerned about recovery and is that clinician recovered? I actually, in some ways, are more concerned about the people who aren't recovered, who have never had eating disorders, who live in a diet mentality or aren't you know, health at any size informed. I have as many concerns about them 
as I would about somebody who might be relapsing. I think that we're missing the boat when we're putting the focus too much on is that person really recovered? Because I think we live in a very toxic society and I wouldn't want any of my patients seeing somebody who had never had an eating disorder, but was trying to lose 20 pounds. Yes, I agree. I agree. There is something about people that have been so subjected to the diet culture, which by the way, everybody is, everybody is. I think people with eating disorders sometimes do it in overdrive. And we have a bit of an ability to say, look at what is happening to you. I am going to make a quote and I know it's wrong. So everybody forgive me. I do this all the time. I heard years ago that we spend more money on the diet industry than we do on our school educational system every year. And I hope that is still correct because I just said that. But these are also little nuggets and kernels, Beth, that you and I get when we go to all these eating disorder conferences. I get little little bits of information that I think if you're not an if you if you don't go to an eating disorder, if you if you haven't had an eating disorder or you're not specializing in eating disorders, you're just not gonna get that that unique information that we're we're exposed to. We're privy to a lot of good good information. So Beth, let me ask you a question. Have you ever questioned your recovery? Um, I, I don't think I've questioned it. I think that it's, it ebbs and flows. I think that um, I was very worried before I had children. And I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of recovered clinicians saying, anybody here get pregnant and have kids once they were recovered? And everybody looked at me like, no, none of us have had children yet. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, how is it going to feel as it? So I think that there were times and more challenges in my life um, where I had some concerns. What would it be like to get pregnant? What would it be like to feel pregnant? What would it be like postpartum? Um, I was very, very blessed because I didn't have any difficulty and I really was able to love my body and, um, and manage it fine. And so that was, but, but yes, I was concerned at different stages of my life at one point, um, you know, when there was more trauma happening in my life, I was like, you know, death, death and dying. How would my recovery go? So it was more the anticipation of it than the experience. I, I, I always say to my clients, and this is true for me, you never really know when the last time you'll be symptomatic is, right? It surprises you. Uh, so I was never 100% sure. I was cautious. And the funny thing, um, I always have said when I was at Meta and Rebecca Manley and I used to talk about this is, you know, every two to three years we joke about, um, did I say I was recovered three years ago? Because now I'm so much more recovered, right? And I kind of did that through the birth of my children. You know, I wasn't like, it's different being pregnant and having a pregnant body and being postpartum and dealing with children and had I thought I was recovered before I got pregnant, absolutely. But going through a birth, I think, made me even more recovered, right? 
So I think that you can look back and kind of see how your recovery evolves, even if you've never had any symptoms. It is fascinating because I feel like almost every five years or so, I look back and I think, I, I, you know what it is, Beth? I think what you and I are experiencing is we're just having more self-realizations. I, I think that I look back every couple of years and think, wow, emotionally, I was in a very different place five years ago. And so I don't know if I look back and say I'm more recovered from my eating disorder. I think I'm just more self-aware as I get older. And as I'm farther away from the eating disorder, I'm a, I have the space to be more self-aware. So maybe it's for us, the more distance we have from it, the, the more space we have to have this like self-actualization or something like that. So when you were talking about being in your body as a pregnant woman, things like that, and I'm not insinuating that this will be your most favorite recovered day, but do you have a time that you can say, I actually have a most favorite recovered day? Uh, the most, I don't have a day, I have experiences. Being pregnant was an amazing experience for me. I loved pregnancy. I still dream about being pregnant. <laughs> I so, love it. You know, sometimes, you know, and I love, love, love children. And I have two grandchildren. And so I just, that whole experience of being with kids um, living in a pregnant body, feeling the kicking. I mean, all of that was phenomenal. But another weird, um, great recovery day, it's not one day, but for me, going out to dinner and loving being in a restaurant, eating the food, having a glass of wine has been really lovely for me. I just, I cherish it for so many years. Uh, it was a nightmare. And um, I just, I love sitting and eating. Um, I just love food and I love moving my body. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I'm 62 years old. I'm trying to age gracefully and that's so important to me. So there are so many moments of what I call clips, like little photographs in my head about what recovery has meant to me and the joy it has brought me. It's so interesting. And, and again, I repeat this often on the podcast. I, I have never taken my recovery for granted. And there are still times when I'll be at a restaurant. So I love to go out to eat. It's like my most favorite thing in the whole wide world. I also don't know how to cook. So it's kind of a necessity. And it's also a great way to socialize and be if you're in a relationship with somebody and nothing brings me more joy than sitting and saying to somebody else, you order. Like I had a really long day. Like I love going out to eat with friends and, and just getting tons and tons of plates and we all share and things like that. Because when I was in my eating disorder, oh my God, Beth, my parents for some reason, because I think Families do think it's so much about the food and it's about the food and it's not about the food. My parents thought for some reason, if they took me out to eat, I wouldn't throw a tantrum. 
I was like known in downtown Boston. Like there was like a picture of me and my parents at every restaurant with like a line through our faces because I would go to every restaurant and cry and send my food back and order five times and order this on the side and do this. And I can't believe the size of the potato. And I can't, oh my gosh. Now I go out to eat and I say, I'm tired you order and it's the best thing that actually feels so nurturing for me i feel like i'm being taken care of that for me is a gift and a blessing right absolutely i also remember a time because i used to cry in every restaurant um I, now, I'm going to give a story, and granted, I was on a vacation, so let's also put in perspective, I was in Italy. This was not your everyday moment. I did a mother-daughter trip to Italy, and my mother and I were joined with all these people that we had met along the way, and we're sitting at this table. We're in Tuscany, and again, this is a very vacation-oriented story. We're in Tuscany, and Beth, I swear to you, it was as if I was living in a dream. Like the curtains were blowing in the wind. The conversation was amazing, all this stuff. And I started crying. And my mother went white and thought, oh my God, I haven't seen her cry at a table in 15 years. She said, Karen, what's happening? And I said, mom, these are tears of joy. Do you realize if we took this trip 15 years ago, I would have literally said to everybody, oh, no, 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 no. I, it's not that I don't eat pasta. I just really love vegetables. I'll just have a vegetable plate. Thank you very much with no pasta on the side. You know, I said, mom, do you taste how good this pasta is? Do you taste the wine? Are you hearing the conversations our friends are having? Can you see the curtain blowing in the wind? These are tears of joy. I would have never been able to do this trip 15 years ago because you can go on vacation, but your eating disorder comes with you. That's some of the things that I reflect back on, just how easy and joyful life can be without an eating disorder. And I feel like that's what you were referring to as well. What's something that if people, what, what is something that people don't know about you or, or you feel like misunderstand something about you? What would that be? I'm curious. People think that I, um, because most people have known me as um, working at Meta and a pretty strong-willed person. I tell my clients all the time when I was in my early twenties, and this is, a, I tell everyone this because I really want them to see and believe the power of change that I was too ashamed to return something to a store because I felt bad and guilty that I should never have bought it. I didn't want to bother anybody. And that I would be like, I just keep things. If I bought something and I didn't like it, I would keep it because I would, I could have, it was immobilized. And now people see me and they're like, you, oh my God, you know, you fight with everybody, you advocate, you know, and I really, the people can change dramatically. And I am so proud of who I've become in this world. Uh, that was not who I was as a teenager. I 
as a young adult. Um, it took me many, many years and a lot of hard work to start feeling better about myself. I say to all my clients, I wish if we could buy some self-esteem, I would give you the money. I don't have it. It's so hard to get this self-esteem thing. And, you know, it's not perfect. And I'm still, you know, I always believe that I have areas of growth and I want my families. I do a lot of family therapy. I'm like, I say to my families, you know, you can't expect your loved one to grow and change if you don't too. And I expect the same of myself. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's actually really fun growing. I, I feel as a recovered person, I am enjoying every step of the way, even the bumps, even the hurdles. And so maybe enjoy is not the right word, but I'm allowing myself to be in those moments. And Beth, knowing you, I am surprised that there was a time in your life that you were afraid to go return something. But I love what you just said. This is how far we can grow and change. Beth, it has been such a pleasure having you. As you know, before I end the podcast, I always like to shift it to a bit of a different topic. So my question is, if somebody were to write something about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? I would hope that it would be saying that I was kind and patient uh, and fair. I want to be known as a fair, um, pretty much a giving person. Um, yeah, I think that that would, I mean, you know, I don't want them writing swears about me. <laughs> <laughs> also, another thing is, as you know, I love laughing and I love comedy. And so I, I just love, I would like them to say I love laughing. Beth loved to laugh and I do. I agree with all of those things you just said about yourself. Absolutely, Beth, because you are kind and you are fair and you are a fighter and a wonderful voice in the eating disorder community. And your advocacy is really, really needed. And I want to thank you as a clinician working with eating disorders for all the work that you do. So again, Beth, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Karen. And, and it's so exciting, this podcast idea. So I think that it's going to be wonderful to, for everybody to have this as a resource. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with all of you next week and stay safe. Okay. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.